0: Good morning, Razorback Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Hog Talk Podcast. This is Special Edition, episode number 81, with your host, Porter Hayes, with special guest host, Alyssa Orange, of Pig Trail Nation. They also get to have the opportunity to talk to Sarah Spain from ESPN. They talked about her rise to ESPN, women's empowerment, and all the amazing women's programs at the University of Arkansas. This episode is brought to you by Hyman Services in Northwest Arkansas. Is your to-do or honey-do list too long to tackle? Are your DIY skills likely to fail you? Do you wish you had a handy friend who would do what they promised without breaking the bank? Hyman Services is a family-owned and operated business whose work ethic and customer service will restore your confidence in handyman. Our customer service reviews speak volumes, Check Hyman Services out on Facebook and call us for any interior or exterior project around your home or business. We do repairs and installations, small remodels, landscaping, decks, patios, fencing, and so much more. Call Hyman Services today at 479-347-9336 and tackle your to-do list without getting your hands dirty. This is Jacob Davis, and I want to tell you this is going to be a great episode of the Hog Talk Podcast. Porter Hayes has done a terrific job, and I hope you enjoy it and spread the word about the great sports at the U of A. We pick. Addition
1: to the Hog Talk Podcast. Today, alongside my co-host, Alyssa Orange of the Pig Trail Nation. We have from ESPN's Around the Horn, highly questionable. Also a two-time Dan Levitard Show SUI winner and a <laughs> former heptathlete at Cornell, Sarah Spain. How are you doing today?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yes, Sarah.
1: So basic, yeah. So basically, tell us about your journey, you know, from, from being a heptathlete at Cornell and to your rise that took you to where you're at now with ESPN.
2: Well, it's sort of a winding journey, so I'll make it uh, rather quick. (laughs) I was an English major at Cornell. I was a heptathlete, and uh, growing up, I always wanted to be in entertainment. I hoped to be on Saturday Night Live or maybe uh, Broadway, and so um, I took some acting classes and and did as much as I could in the arts at Cornell while competing, kind of understanding that my athletic career would end after college, Um, and then shortly after college, I moved to L.A., to try to pursue comedy and acting and stuff. Took a bunch of classes, did all the stuff you do, you know, work in a restaurant and and do jobs where you can take off for for auditions and stuff. Um, And I took a hosting boot camp weekend to learn about TV hosting, hosted a fake Chicago Bears show to practice teases and throwing to break and stuff like that. And the teacher said, oh, you want to get into sports? I said, oh, no, there's there's no women in sports. You know, I love it. I've been watching and, and participating all my life. But You just don't see any women, especially not funny women. There's just like a couple of sidelines reporters or maybe an anchor. And she said, well, it seems really natural. You know, maybe you should try it out. So simultaneously with uh, going to a Second City to do the whole improv conservatory there, I got a job as a PA at Fox Sports uh, on a nightly highlight show, which was such a great way to dive in because I had to watch. Every single kind of sport, log the action, decide what the highlights were for the anchor person, and then write out what they would say on the air about that particular game highlight. And so I had to watch NASCAR and golf and, and hockey and all these things that I had watched, but maybe didn't know the rules as perfectly as, as was necessary for the job. So it really kind of gave me a great base um, and then started trying to write for a couple blogs for free, um, did a fantasy football kind of video series that that ran online on a couple websites. Um, and eventually decided I wanted to keep pushing for this career back home in Chicago. Um, so I moved from L.A. back to Chicago, got a job at a startup website um, that was supposed to be sort of the voice of the athlete. And that was my first foray into all the locker rooms of the, of the major Chicago teams and really trial by fire. there, learning how to you know, be a, a, among the other beat reporters and getting those stories and, and interviews. Uh, started doing a local Chicago TV show called Chicago's Best that was not sports related. It was all about, you know, restaurants and bars and stores and whatever. Um, and did some radio for them, uh, for WGN, the same network, uh, around the same time. And that's when, uh, when I got a call from ESPN to go in and start being their sports center anchor. So I would just do updates, um, every couple of times an hour on the ESPN 1000 station, eventually added ESPNW writing to my schedule. And then, um, Slowly added TV, so Sports Center, and then Around the Horn, Outside the Lines, Oberman, Numbers Never Lie, uh, His and Hers, uh, all that stuff, and so highly questionable. And so now I've been at ESPN for about um, for ten years now, which is crazy. Uh, and so I have my national nightly radio show, uh, six to nine p.m. Eastern every weeknight, my podcast, and then uh, the shows you mentioned, Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, Levitard, and then still doing writing stuff for uh, for ESPNW. So. Uh, They keep me pretty busy, even right now when everyone's (laughs) talking about how bored they are. I'm like, I still got all my shows every day and work to do. So I wanted to I wanted to see like just from a former
3: athlete standpoint, now on a national platform, you know, using the the comedy as part of it as well to build your brand and then using that platform to be such a voice for women who are athletes but are also in the business.
2: Yeah. You know, when I first started, especially, it was really important for me to sort of lead with my sense of humor. I was not going to outdo people at knowing every statistic from every league, um, especially considering even though I loved sports growing up, my parents weren't really big into sports. I was an athlete. I was all state and band and chorus. I was like super overcommitted and busy. So as much as I was obsessed with the nineties bulls, I caught some cubs, some bears, but I was not the way um, a lot of people who end up growing up and going into sports would say that they were addicted from the beginning, and I certainly didn't have family members that were sort of fostering my interest, not not through any fault of their own. It just wasn't their thing, and Mm -hmm. so I was much more well-rounded, and so when I decided to start pursuing it, I had a lot of catching up to do, and one of the things that I felt separated me from the pack, if not that base knowledge of everything, was my improbability, my ability to think quick on my feet, so... Oftentimes, especially early on, like one example I always use is, you know, we got sent my the website I was working for, along with all the other outlets in Chicago to peanut Tillman's flag football game for charity. And most of the interviews are, you know, hey, peanut, what does it mean to you to have your teammates show up and support you? You know, who's going to do X and Y? And instead, I mic'd us both up and acted like I was trying out to be the Bears' you know, number one receiver. Because at the time, Devin Hester, who was really a return specialist and should never have been a number one receiver, <laughs> was slotted there. And so they mic'd me up. And I, I knew Peanut had a great personality, so I just had to make fun of me for my terrible routes or my, you know, whatever. And it was much more fun to watch than just another old interview. So I took my sketch background, my improv background, and I really led with that. And I still love to do that. But I also, as I've gotten more agency and a a voice in the industry, it's really important to me, Mm -hmm. um, to not just have people think I'm fun and want to go grab a beer with me, but also to kind of pave a way for women, you know, shout down some of the inequalities, point out the things that I think are still damaging and not, and not done right in the industry. Uh, and that's always kind of been how I feel in general. I I think I would feel guilty having people who paved the way for me and allowed me to be in this industry and not try to make sure that I'm doing that as well.
1: So, Sarah, you know, talking about that just a second, you know, who were the ones that influenced you and, and basically, you know, your mentors as you were coming up through the ranks and, and paved that way for you?
2: Well, from afar, and, and now that I've met him, he's he's a friend, but from afar, Kenny Main was like the main event was my thing because it was satire and it was elevated and. I remember one of, one of my hosting reels, like one of the first things I put on was a Spain event that was all about replacing hardwood floors with concrete because of the murder of trees. Uh, you know, it was all the same kind of satirical bent. And um, so Kenny Mayne was someone I saw kind of combining sports and comedy and having that sort of just very wry sense of humor. Um, and then once I started getting into it, um, there's a guy named Steve Cochran in Chicago, longtime radio host who was just super supportive. He would have me on his radio show and do stump to Spain and have callers try to beat me in trivia, but he just give me the answers. He really just wanted <laughs> to have this sassy opinionated woman on and have her kind of know more than everybody. Um, and I told him like, trivia is not my thing. He's like, oh, I, I want, I want to give you the answers. I really just want you to mess with people. And I want to have this like female voice on that's, you know, you know, telling people what's what. Um, and so he was great early on. Um, Jamel Hill Actually, you know, I call her my fairy career mother because um, we had an ESPNW summit, and we still have it every single year down in Southern California. And I did a lot of stage work. Um, and at the time, I was just writing and doing radio. And she said, "Why are you not on TV?" And I said, "I, you know, I, they they just kind of feel like they haven't seen me do enough anywhere else to trust me to do it." And she said, "Well, next time I'm off my show, which at the time was Number Numbers Live, I'm going to tell them to have you come in and host. And I was like, okay. And then like a month later, they call me up. We're going to fly you out to Bristol. You're going to host while Jamel's out. And it was like, all I needed was that little door opening and right after that Oberman called and then outside the lines and they just really needed to see, I was able to do it. And that was a live hour show to kind of kick things off. Um, And so Jamel was huge. Dan Levitard is a massive influence on me and a great mentor. And I just, I, I love to follow his style and his approach because it's really given me a lot of freedom um, because I used to expect myself to have to do everything that everybody does, right? I need to be as good of a newsbreaker as Schefter and as great of an analyst as Doris Burke, and you know, also be as funny as this person. And, and instead, I, I I realize that everybody has their strengths, and even Dan, who is incredibly insightful and knows a ton, will openly admit on the air. You know what? I can't remember who coaches the Nets. Does anybody know who coaches the Nets right now? And can you name two players on the Nets? And he acknowledges that like, it's a tough job. We have to know a million things and there's going to be, you know, holes in our knowledge. And instead of being defensive or beating yourself up about it, just own it and move on. And that's really freed me up to make sure I'm focusing on the things that I do well and what I can bring to the table and not stressing about needing to know every single thing all the time. Um, So he's been a huge influence. Uh, Laura Gentilly and Allison Overholt are the two kind of masterminds. Laura um, started ESPNW and is a really high up ranking woman at ESPN who's constantly pushing for things to change. Allison Overholt is editor in chief of the mag now, uh, the online version um, and ESPNW and all sorts of roles at ESPN. Another brilliant woman who just thinks uh, big in terms of the ways that we can influence and change the sports landscape. So, I mean, I could go on. There's, there's lots of them, but that's a couple. <clears throat>
3: You know, one thing that I've admired about you and and you just touched on it is just how well-rounded you are and how multifaceted you can be. And, um, I'm sure I'm not the only one that sat on their couch and cried while I read your article on Dylan McCullough and his journey to find his, um, biological parents. And I always wanted to, if I had a chance to ask you about that article and when that story fell in your lap, the, the feelings that it evoked in you and then what it was like to write a piece that's so profound but almost impossible when you think
2: about yeah. <clears throat> what happened. So my friend Skip actually played college football with Dylan. He was his fullback to Dylan's running back and he just a good friend of mine, we were actually going to a um to a march in Chicago together and we grabbed some food afterwards. He's like I gotta tell you the story. And he told me maybe like a 10 minute version and I had chills and I was on the verge of tears. I was like, Oh my God, this story is unbelievable. And he said, as soon as Dylan told me, I said, you have to do ESPN for this. And so, um, I took it to the higher ups at ESPN, potentially as a 30 for 30. And then that's when I kind of realized 30 for 30 is like what happened when and E60 is more what's happening now. And Mm -hmm. so they were like, this is the great E60. Let's pursue this. Um, and it was my first long form feature reporting like that a 22 minute feature and the the guy, uh, Dwayne Bray, who runs ESPN or er, E60 said, we, we need to have a written version of this too. This story is incredible. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, I'm a writer. And meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my God, this is like the most amazing story. I don't want to mess it up. Should mm-hmm. I tell them to have Mina Kimes write it or Wright Thompson <laughs> or like somebody who's, who does all these long form features? Um, and then I wanted to believe in myself and I knew that it was my story to tell. And it was the, you know, I was going to be doing all the interviews with the people involved and I really wanted to make good on it. And so it, it was a lot of pressure. I felt a lot of nerves, but it also opened my eyes to, you know, if you put in the work for a story like that, and if you're given the resources and time to really fly around and interview all these people and then get the transcripts of these hours of, of information, you could put together the kind of pieces that I had read before and wondered, gosh, how do they know? That in sixth grade, this person did this, like, how long are they talking for? How are they getting this, like, kind of, this kind of beautiful detail? And so it was a wonderful learning experience for me. And I've actually spoken about it since in terms of pushing people to trust themselves and to put themselves out there for things that they maybe don't know if they can do yet. Because I ended up, the story ended up winning a number of awards. Um, including a really prominent um, writing uh, award for the best sports writing piece of the year, which like, like I said, like Wright Thompson was at the dinner, you know, having had Mm -hmm. having won it before. and I would never have put myself even in the same sentence with him before. So um, it was really proof to me that, as things come up, I need to not doubt myself. I need to be able to believe that I could can, I can do them. And we're now working on turning that into a feature film. And so at every turn, I'm saying, yes, I can be a script supervisor on a feature film. Yes, I can be an executive producer, you know, um, and I want to continue to play a role in in, in this story. So, um, it, yeah, it's pretty magical. Uh, and the family is just awesome and quite a cherry on top to uh, end up. I took Dylan's birth mom to the Super Bowl this year, thanks to my friends at Gatorade, mm-hmm. they hooked us up so that we could go see her her son and his chiefs with the Super Bowl. Yeah, well, thank
3: you for writing it. I know I'm not the only one who said that, but it's one of the, the best pieces I've ever read.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you.
1: So, Sarah, you know, even here now, we you know, we're in 2020 and we're still dealing with, you know, derogatory comments, whether, you know, Sabrina, you know, and her being the first player in NBA history to surpass 2000, 1000 and 1000 and all the negative comments she received off of that. And I know you were a part of the response and I followed along as you were and you yourself as being with ESPN, you yourself deal with the negative comments. And, you know, Don Staley was vocal about being the number one team in the nation in women's college basketball. And it was just not enough publicity she felt that her team was getting and I mean how do we really as a whole overcome that
2: yeah you know there's a lot in there and it's interesting I think when people ask how we can fix sexism a uh, lack of resources uh, lack of respect uh, lack of media attention etc um, in women's sports I say well we first have to fix it in society right we're not mm-hmm this isn't an isolated space where these things occur. This is a reflection of our our larger and greater views about women and their worth. In society, it's difficult to find people who are willing to prioritize the skills and talents of a woman over her appearance. You look at, there's been some very prominent examples, whether that's like Michelle Obama, where everyone wanted to talk about her clothes and her arm development, right? Instead of the fact that she was this brilliant, accomplished uh, career woman, or you know, Amal Clooney, who's like, you know, fighting like massive, uh, you know, political crimes and and injustices, and meanwhile, it's all about whether, you know, she looks cute next to him on a red carpet. We we have a lot of trouble in general. We also want to put women in into boxes, so that if we decide that we're willing to respect them as an athlete, then maybe we aren't also looking at them as a woman. And if we're if we, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many aspects, you know, I think some of the sports that really succeed in mainstream are the ones where the women are, are aesthetically and, and traditionally pleasing. That's girl next door. Look, they're not too tall or too muscular or too queer or too black or too anything. And that's soccer, that's tennis. But then, you know, you insert someone like Serena Williams and you watch the way that people react to somebody who isn't the norm breaking through. Um, women's basketball, our women's basketball Olympic team has been as dominant as any team in history. They just don't get the same love and attention as our, say, soccer team. A lot of that is that they're taller, they're stronger, they're less, you know, stereotypically feminine. There's a lot of queer, there's a lot of women of color. And, you know, all those issues that we have in regular society bleed into our coverage and our acceptance of sports. Um, And so I think on the one hand, there's a lot of needing to continue to talk about it and engage on it and make sure people realize that there's still so much to to change. And then there's a lot of action as well, where it's just people who are breaking down barriers, doing amazing things and changing the general subconscious, even without people knowing it, whether that's someone like, you know, Doris Burke calling all these games or it's Simone Biles or, or Serena, you know, there's, there's ways to just continue to push through and achieve, I would say even Sabrina UNESCO, I mean as much criticism as she might have gotten she also had a bunch of NBA dudes watching her games and coming up to to watch courtside and saying that she's different and uh those kind of uh, those kind of uh stamps of approval from the best you know game recognized game and that's the thing that stands out the most to me is that usually the people criticizing women in sports whether they're analysts or or athletes are not the athletes themselves cuz they get it it's the lump on a log dudes at home it's the potentially jealous or um, intimidated other male scribes who are worried about their precious space being, you know, stepped on. Um, And so, you know, there's a, there's any number of elements that sort of have to be addressed before things will change. You know,
3: on the, on that note though, you have to look and appreciate how much women have been able to grow on a national level, especially women's basketball and how exposure um, Sabrina other athletes that have come before her have really been able to take women's basketball collegiately to the next mark and make it a revenue builder for universities when, you know, three years
2: ago, four years ago, it might not have been the case. I totally agree. Um, and it's interesting whenever people ask me sort of that blanket question of like how, what, how, how have things changed since you got in the industry, I always say it's unbelievable how many more opportunities have opened up for women or that women have gone and grabbed. Even when I just started, there were not very many women who were opinionists. There were not very many women who were analysts. It was sort of like you're the moderator who gets to set up other men's, you know, uh, men's opinions. And that's not the case anymore at all. But at the same time, I say some of the same issues that women were dealing with in the 70s still come up today. So we still have a lot to do. But yeah, I do think that, you know, and I think as much as there's criticism for media outlets for not offering up as much of their time and attention to women which is 100% valid i do think there are all, all, also some big um efforts you know ESPN airing all the women's college basketball and airing WNBA and NWSL and you know trying to be involved in in pushing you know for for more accessibility for those broadcasts is huge
1: yeah, I was going to kind of ask about, you know, the since, you know, ESPNW's launch in 2009, you know, what has that done for women's athletics? Along with now we have conference networks such as the SEC Network and, and the Big Ten that now shows all not just basketball and football, but you can now watch soccer and softball and volleyball games as well.
2: Yeah, those specific to uh, um, different conferences are, are great because it's just a space for people who pursue that stuff to find it. And I feel the same way about W. You know, uh, At first, it was criticized as sort of, um, people would use the word ghettoization of it, that it was put off into its own space and hidden. But I disagree with that. If, if stories were compelling enough, they would go to the front page of regular.com. The key was that when you're on .com, there's so many things to see and read about that it, it, you wouldn't often be able to find all of the stories about female athletes in sports specifically, W just gives you a place to find it. And people would never say that about ESPNFC or the undefeated or even Grantland if you were interested in pop culture sports intersection or, um, you know, any of the specific branch offs that were for sports, they wouldn't say that, but they would have that criticism for for W. And I think that really um, lessened once people saw the product and could appreciate that it was a landing page for all those things that you might have interest in. And then it also bleeds into the way the company works as a whole. You know, a lot of the women's basketball broadcast and coverage are you know, ESPN's W's domain, and 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 they're sort of running that content. Um, there's people from W in meetings talking about what women are in this top 10 on SportsCenter, what, what uh, best performances by women are in this montage of this year. Like, you know, really just having people in the room whose mind is calibrated to look for a diverse set of examples or games or athletes is massively uh, changing in terms of how it affects um, the coverage that you see. Same goes for the shows, right? Like if I'm on around the horn and we have our call in the morning and they're talking about what topics to do. And I say, Oh, I really think we should do Oregon's game tonight because Sabrina is likely to break this record. Or I think we should talk about the first first round matchup between these two teams in the NCAA tournament. You know, most of the time they're super uh, open to those suggestions and they want to be reminded of stories that are on 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 top of of mind for women's sports and so just having a bunch of w people spread out across the country kind of continuing to push for that is huge
1: well here at arkansas you know we've been blessed to have a bunch of you know women's successful programs and you know, Coach Jordan Weber with the gymnastics program really brought out a, a women's empowerment meet. And it was the first of its kind. And, you know, they're setting, you know, season ticket holder records. A lot of people are coming to more games. And I think with the addition of what we talked about before with the SEC Network and, and ESPNW, more people are starting to come to more games. And so I guess that really helps bring more awareness to the game that it's getting more people in the seats.
2: Yeah, and I think a huge part of sports is that they're incredibly communal and social. And if you look at places where the space and the community has decided that this event is something to, to gather for and to be a part of, then they appreciate it. And, and whether that's you know Portland's incredible community around soccer, both the MLS and the NWLS, um, when, when you look at Yukon women's basketball, which is the hottest ticket in that area, um, women's soccer going around and selling out giant, you know, the Rose Bowl. Um, part of the shift needs to be in the way we all talk about and address women's sports. Because I think you look at some of the bigger voices in sports back in the day. and you know, Bill Simmons always comes up to me the way that he would talk about, you know, the WNBA, the way prominent male sportscasters would talk about the WNBA derisively. With, for, for no reason. Right. Wouldn't you want your daughter, wife, sister, whatever, to be a professional basketball player, to be one of the best in the world? What isn't amazing about that? And the the the, the general vibe around the WNBA early on was so negatively tinged by the coverage given to it by misogynist and antiquated sports reporters. And the further we can move away from that, and the more it's cool to like Simone Biles and to care about Oregon women's basketball and to rock your U.S. women's soccer jerseys, the easier it is to get people to want in because it's part of an experience. And that's the problem with, with you know, trying to attract people to sports is it should be something that everybody wants to go and be a part of and gather around. And when it's not being given its due, that's really hard to do. And I, you know, I went on a rant on my radio show w- during the height of UNESCO's run. And I said, listen, she just broke this record that had never been done before. And half of the TV and radio people on ESPN that are reading their Sports Center update or are talking about it are calling her Like That's not acceptable. And nobody that's working on their show is correcting them. So they don't know it either. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't show up and talk about another topic and not do the tiniest bit of research on it. But you feel comfortable doing that when it's women's sports, because you don't care. And meanwhile, you've got people having experts to come on to talk about the XFL that hadn't even started yet, and being able to tell you the team names and yada yada. And this girl is in her fourth season of of you know dominating, and we we know all about her. she has been building all season, and you haven't figured out how to say her name yet. Like that tells mm-hmm. me all I need to know about whether you are giving this the attention and respect that it should get. And and I think that's one of the biggest things that needs to change is. People's jobs are to know about this stuff, and when it comes to women's sports, a lot of times they let themselves off the hook and don't do the work. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly, and I'll kind of finish (laughs) off with two kind of questions. I've always wanted to ask you, all-time UConn, all-time Tennessee, who do you got one in in a game?
2: Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, is Pat coaching Tennessee versus Gino?
1: Yes, yes, Pat versus Gino. That's the only way you got to have it. That's the only way you can do it.
2: Oh, I'm going to say UConn. I think there's a bigger pool of greatness because they're still on that run and Tennessee's not quite at its peak the way it was before. I'm going to still take UConn, but that would be an amazing game to
1: watch. Great answer. Yes, I'd have UConn. My dad, he was actually uh, stationed in Fairfield, Connecticut back in 96 to 2000. So
3: I got to go up
1: there during the rise of that. So I've always and my best friend in high school was a big Tennessee fan. So, I mean, all throughout our high school career, we had this rivalry because we knew when they played, it was going to be a battle between Pat and Gino. I mean, that was a lot of people don't realize how good of a rivalry that was. And it really kick-started a lot of the, the popularity of women's college basketball. Really?
2: It was a huge part of it. Yes. Those two battling back and forth.
1: Well, I want your personal opinion before we go. How excited are you about the early release of The Last Dance? And what uh-huh. is a lot of these people who don't know who the real GOAT is, what, what are oh, they yeah. about to see?
2: I'm super excited. The only thing I'll say that tempers it is that I'm bummed that there were some really big plans around it that won't be seen now. There was a, a big premiere in Grant Park uh, in Chicago. There was an event in New York. Um, so I think a lot of the rollouts and events that the PR staff and the team had been working on are not gonna happen, which is a bummer. Uh, but yes, excited to have something to focus on and uh, to talk about. And you know what's, what's gonna be interesting is for people to see Michael's intensity at every free throw, every defensive possession, every practice, I think they will both admire it, and there will be criticism as well of his, you know, impatience for teammates and those that were lesser than him, but it was what drove him and made him so great, and then I think that team especially is interesting because you kind of can group them with it, all the other of that of those two three-peats, but by 97-98, Phil Jackson had made it clear he was leaving after that season, Scottie Pippen had been asking for a trade, Jordan was likely to be gone when Phil went, and so it was, and then Rodman, you know, so you're keeping together these disparate pieces that had been so unified and were kind of on their way out. And it would have been easy for that team to fail. Um, it's remarkable that they didn't in any of their trips to the finals. I mean, how spoiled were we that not only did we get six titles during that decade, but that they never lost one. They never made it all the way to the finals and then broke our hearts at the highest stage. So um, that, uh, that kind of drama behind the scenes and, the marionette strings of phil jackson kind of making sure that all the puppets were in the right spot and did the right things uh going to be really cool to watch and i just think there's so much about jordan behind the scenes uh that we're going to get to get to see because he's not someone that is always as, as publicly um transparent and so uh yeah and i think all the kids that think he's just a meme now are going to get it they're going to understand
3: Sarah, I, I don't know if you know this, but one of the assistant basketball coaches at Arkansas is Corey Williams, who was on one of those uh, Nice idol. That and he, his claim to fame, he always tells us, is Michael Jackson said my or Michael Jordan said my name. <laughs> <laughs> Just, <laughs> Just the ones yeah. yeah. Right. Just That's
2: awesome. Yeah.
1: Well, Sarah, I really appreciate you taking time from your your busy schedule to be on our podcast and really help us, you know bring bring more awareness to the, the women's empowerment and the women's game because i mean it's, as much as it's growing it's still not where we like to to see where it's at so thank you again for coming on yeah
2: we appreciate it thanks sarah yeah thanks guys it's great talking to you
1: anytime
0: thank you mm-hmm. raise your back fans that'll do it for episode number 81 special edition of the hog talk podcast Thank you, Porter. As always, you did a great job. And thank you to the ladies, Alyssa Orange of Picture Nation and Sarah Spain of ESPN for being on the Hog Talk podcast. We hope you Razorback fans enjoyed the show. Come back again and always share our content as you can on social media. We appreciate every single one of you fans. Whoopick.